0: Have you ever wondered what it's like to sit in on a magazine editorial meeting? Well, this is your chance. You're listening to Salt Lake Speaks, a monthly podcast where our editors, writers, and staff dig deeper into stories, chat with newsmakers, and talk amongst ourselves about arts, culture, food, music, politics, or whatever else might strike our fancy. After all, we are Utah's biggest fans. Hi, I'm Andrea Peterson, and you are listening to Salt Lake Magazine's own podcast, Salt Lake Speaks. Today's episode of Salt Lake Speaks is brought to you by Spencer's for Steaks and Chops, the original USDA prime steakhouse at Hilton Salt Lake City Center. It's celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. A Salt Lake City staple, Spencer's continues to deliver contemporary and seasonal dishes, hand-cut steaks, fresh seafood, local produce and cheeses, as well as classically inspired cocktails, local craft beers, and an award-winning wine list that has kept locals coming back for two decades. Check them out today. Joining us today on Salt Lake Speaks is writer and historian Gregory Hinton. Hinton's background lies in the study of the hidden gay history of the West, which is part of the Now West series that is currently taking place at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts as part of the Go West, Art of the American Frontier from the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. Hinton grew up gay in Cody, Wyoming before evacuating, as he would say, to Southern California. Hinton believes many of the urban and urbane LGBTs have deep-seated urban biases and have abandoned the stewardship of the American West and the civil struggles of their gay and lesbian country cousins. Hinton, through his writings, films, and art projects, he hopes to continue to illuminate the contributions of the LGBTQ community in the history and culture of the American West. Gregory, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here in Utah, and Utah is definitely in the middle of the West. Let's start with your love of the West. I grew up in Texas and went to school out in West Texas, but I never had the draw for the wide open countryside landscapes. I am definitely a city girl. Um, You, on the other hand, grew up in Cody, Wyoming, spent many years in Southern California, but found your way back and very happily. Um, What is it about the Western countryside that really draws you in?
1: Obviously, it's the open spaces. uh gives me time to think and um, I am pretty comfortable with my own company and I love long drives and the West, particularly the drive um, up on its way through, uh, through Salt Lake and North is just so spectacular. I, I, it just makes me very, very happy to be here and be outside.
0: I mean, I definitely love the mountains. They're gorgeous, and they're nature's uh, skyscrapers, as you would say. Yes, <laughs> yes, they are. Well, um, you and your older brother grew up gay in Wyoming.
1: I should say that we lived in Wyoming as kids and, and grew up on the front range of the Rockies in Colorado.
0: Oh, in Colorado's okay. That would
1: born in uh, in rural north uh, eastern Montana, okay. then to Cody, and then and then to Colorado, and then to California.
0: So several areas. You yes, definitely yes, migrated. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, living out in the West then, because, you know, you had to get to a point where you wanted to evacuate where you were located, Um, what was the key moment that, you know, kind of led to, I've got to get out of here and go to the urban city center?
1: It was a call from a theological student at the University of Colorado to my mom where she was advised that if I didn't desist in my ways that I would be driven out of Boulder with whips and chains.
0: Wow. It was that intense. How did that whole happen?
1: Uh, well he was a friend uh, at the time and I was uh, had close friends who were inside uh, kind of the born-again communities that um, you know establish and are really wonderful uh, in university towns all over the country. but uh, I had felt I could trust this particular person with these feelings I was grappling with and uh, he totally uh, well he freaked out and he made this call. She screams, my dad, Takes the phone, and says, "If you ever call here again, I'll kill you." And it was a moment that I'll never forget. And he since apologized for this, but it really uh, had a huge impact on my parents and their concern uh, for me and my brother, because uh, they were worried that we would uh, grow up or, or live lives lonely lives, fearful of our safety. And then their worst fear was realized about ten days after I told them that we were we were gay. So. So that, it was that moment. Um.
0: So it all kind of just rolled through like really quickly after right. you came out. And how was your parents' reaction then? They seemed to be supportive.
1: They were supportive. They didn't have any experience with anybody gay before. And um, obviously now they had, basically what happened is I went home and I told my mom that uh, that I thought I was gay. And um, she said, well, what about your brother? And I said, oh, well, he's gay. T- I outed my poor brother. I said, oh, he's gay too. So she goes to the phone. She didn't say a word. She calls my dad. She says, come home. Uh, she called my sister. Come home. We're having a family meeting. She called my brother. We know. Come home. We're having a family meeting. And we had a family meeting that night where everything was came out, you know, laid out in front of us. And it just all just, it was so quick. You know, I just kind of wanted to have a conversation about it. or But it just, it steamrolled into you know, circling the wagons. and uh, and it was very, very brave of her to to take this on. But what we knew is we would always have family support, but we also knew that uh, it could be very difficult. And my dad said to me later that they didn't want their worry to be our worry, uh, but it was, you know, n- not only was I ashamed for myself, I'd brought fear into their hearts, and uh, at that level and at that time, you know, in, in 70s Boulder, I am thinking this is all my fault. You know, that, that we didn't have the concept of bullying then. We didn't know, you know, this was appropriate reaction as far as I was thinking at the time. Of course, this is how that community would feel, and and I was in the wrong, and so that's that's where all of that that tension starts. Um, Especially in a, in a young person coming to terms with being gay, it's it's not necessarily good news. Right.
0: And how old were you?
1: I was twenty, okay. so I was probably late in coming to that reality. And I didn't know my brother was gay either. So uh, I called him, and he said, "Join the club." And I said, "What?" <laughs> well, I guess
0: that's kind of nice. You're like, okay, we've got. This oh no, 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 We <laughs> were,
1: we were, we were. They were right. We did always have each other.
0: So thinking about that, you mentioned that in the 1970s, things are different now. You know, you think coming out back then and when we think about the 60s and 70s, you were like love, sex, drugs, rock and roll, a little bit more freedom and, you know, the waves of acceptability of sexuality have come and gone over the decades. Um, Have you seen a difference in? people coming out or people you know coming out to families in some of these more rural areas like Boulder or the West?
1: Boulder is a very liberal city but they they, they say even in Boulder is, is a qualification you hear a lot because uh, there's a lot of homophobia in progressive communities including large urban communities like Los Angeles where I come from. It's alive and, and I think that the rural West takes it's unfair hits in that because it's an easy target. There aren't as many people here. And so. But yes, I, I'm so happy for the changes that have occurred since that time. Um, But there's a lot of pressure as a result of those changes as well, I think, on on young people coming to terms with being gay. We weren't always being voted on every week, like we weren't being voted on by the Boy Scouts, we weren't being voted on by the Supreme Court. We were going to live and thrive on our own terms, even if it meant always having to look over your shoulder. That's, that's no way to live, mind you, but we fought for the right to, to live happily as who we are. And, and, and to a large extent, we have. And now there, there's so much support out there. You know, When I went to the University Student Health Center when I was really, really feeling low, I was told to lay down on a, on a cot for 20 minutes and then go back to what I was doing. And now there would be a support system waiting for for anybody who was undergoing any kind of bullying or, you know. So they just didn't know how to handle it or it wasn't a value at the time. Um, So there are so many resources now uh, available to to young people who are coming out and and I think that that's that's really, really terrific. It it disheartens me that uh, so many younger people still are living under the threat of of depression and suicidal ideation. Um, That's of great concern to me.
0: You mentioned, like in an article that I read that you've discussed, um, that statistically it doesn't show any difference between Western communities and urban communities as far as hostility and bullying goes. Why do you think there's a stigma that the West, the countryside, rural communities might be? more dangerous, because you said even one time you had friends warn you about going to Wyoming. This
1: is the 20th anniversary of the murder of Matthew Shepard in, in Laramie, Wyoming, and that was terribly, terribly vicious act, and it was indeed a hate crime. I was talking about this earlier today. I, I'm confused that I love California so much, and I, I know why I love California so much, but I love Wyoming too. It's, it's my history and my past. And I have felt guilty about going back to Wyoming given what happened to Matthew Shepard. And also the film Broke Back Mountain was another, I mean that really informed a lot of people's opinions about Wyoming in particular. I've kind of been trying to deal with that in some sense because I love the community, I love Cody, Wyoming. And I went back afraid to go back as a gay man because of all of this pressure I was getting from people in, my friends, you know, who lived in LA, no, you, you'll get killed in Wyoming, you can't go there. And yet, i my dad was, uh, was in the newspaper business and he was the editor of the Cody Enterprise, originally founded by Buffalo Bill. So what brought me back to Cody was I realized when all the newspapers started crashing that I had never gone back to read his newspaper. I hadn't read his editorials, I hadn't looked at the photographs that he had taken. And so I went back literally to spend time to go through the archives because I wanted to, I really love my dad and I I wanted to reconnect with him. And it was the most remarkable adventure because I connected with some old friends of his who happened to be at the time the chairman of the Buffalo Bill Center of the West, which was the museum of my childhood. I, I was there at the groundbreaking and I literally, after being gone for, 50 years parachuted back into Cody and said, golly, do you know my dad? He was Kip Pinton editor of the Cody. Oh, i was sure we knew Kip, come on in. And, and I got to know them and they were, you know, uh, Senator Alan Simpson was one of them who literally just, I felt like a rich man's son and I was by no means that, but it was that thing about having your dad's cronies put their arms around your shoulder. Well, you have to meet this person. You got to come over to the museum and you got to meet this. And it was like they, they paved the way for me back in, knowing who I was, you know, my knowing the whole, st- you know, I say I wanted to come home to the West, but I wanted to come home as who I am. And, you know, I mean, it's really kind of a wild story.
0: Now, speaking of that, cause you talked about when you told people on, you know, on the coastal sides of the world, that you were heading back to Wyoming, people, you know, were concerned or warned you, and then you came home and it was different. Do you find yourself needing to defend being gay differently you know when you're in the West or in the city or how you defend your life to the people that you meet and see in different locations?
1: I wouldn't really say I have to defend it but I have to if you've ever gone camping and you see the sign grizzly bear area special rules apply that makes so much sense to me you don't lose sense of your your personal sense of safety if you're in an environment that is not necessarily conducive to you being there. Meaning you know, basically you you, you you just always need to be watchful. But I need to be watchful in Los Angeles too. I you know, I live in a place where I've had seven break ins, you know. I have to we all have to be careful for some reason and and I'm not saying cut you know, cut back your jets by any means, but one needs to know where they are and I haven't had any difficulty being a gay man, but that isn't really being any different than anybody walking around. Like, what what's gay about about it? You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, so I've found myself. I, well, I feel more defensive about my love for Wyoming, obviously, than I do for my love of California. And talking about this a bit, you know, you go into these communities and you test people a bit. You want to know where they are, where they stand, and. Um, and the thing is that I didn't have that feeling at all at the museum, and the museum was, was really my, you know, what I, I wanted to go and find out about my own history, and the museum had those records, and um, bit by bit, we started to get to know each other better, and uh, uh, so, so again, it's, uh, it's really been the best decision I ever made was to go back to Wyoming.
0: Then let's jump right into that and talking about Buffalo Bill. This is a big project that you've been involved in. If most people out there, they think about Buffalo Bill, he was like the epitome of the Western man, you know, the, the masculine man, you know. He he rode horses and shotguns and hunted. But after some research, you uncovered he had relationships with multiple individuals whose sexuality at the time was a little bit of question. The painter Rosa Bonaire, is that mm-hmm. correct how you sound?
1: Rosa Bonheur, yeah.
0: And author Oscar Wilde. Rosa, for our audience out there, may have not known, was a painter and her she actually received an official permit by the French government to dress as a man, as long as she didn't appear in public as such. And in fact, the woman that she was living with would keep a dress near the front door if royal officials showed up. But it's interesting because Napoleon III actually stated that genius has no sex. Going off of that, kind of, do you find that society is more accepting of an artist having an ambiguous sexuality versus an individual such as a cowboy or a career that might be more stereotyp- stereotypically masculine?
1: I would say yes. I mean, you generally think of the artist community as as probably being more open about their sexuality in general as people are coming out more and more from basically different walks of life then we realize that there're going to be gay people everywhere and as more and people more and more people come out kind of in their professional life or their personal lives, you know, with their neighbors or their families or whatever. It seems less exotic, obviously, because um, I know a lot of boring gay people. But I, I do think that it's part of the my mission, for instance, is to illuminate for instance, we, we have a, a gay rodeo photography exhibition that's traveling around the country now. It's by a pho- photographer named Blake Little. And basically, looking at Blake's rodeo f- photographs, they look the same as anybody else's rodeo photographs. We just did an exhibit at the uh, New Mexico History Museum uh, by a wonderful uh, photographer named Herbert Lotz. It's a Vietnam photography <coughs> exhibition that uh, from 1968 and the letters that he wrote home but in addition to writing to his family he wrote to to the lover that he left behind so it's just showing us in in all different kinds of walks of life uh, you know where where it's applicable uh, is kind of been the mission of out west so that people can see us as as just being your your neighbor or your friend
0: Well I was going to actually ask you about that we recently had a queer artist and member of the Na- Native American Catawba tribe rue George Warren and he leads historical tours through museums offering new stories about figures that there's more information coming out that might, Have their sexuality be questioned? Where do you see the future of the West as more and more information is released and uncovered about certain individuals in history that we more often assume are a certain way?
1: Well, what's powerful about coming at this subject, you know, as to who maybe—and again, they didn't have the words "gay" or "homosexual" before, you know, until the early 1900s. So we didn't even have a—it wasn't a. It wasn't a noun then it it was like the same gender attraction was more of a verb or whatever so we wouldn't necessarily describe them that way but by bringing up the the LGBT community and telling their stories you know particularly in the story of the American West it also summons the, the idea of like why when you walk into a Western museum do you not see the Chinese community uh, looking back at you from the walls when clearly that community was so important in the development of the American West. Why aren't there more Native Americans uh, stories being depicted? And and obviously we have very wonderful uh, Native American museums throughout the country, but it's still like the stereotype is going to be the Gary tu- Gary Cooper Buffalo Bill kind of image looking back at you. The Jewish community has a wonderful uh, history of the American West. I, I mean, we can go on and on. So it isn't just the gay community that I'm interested in illuminating, and, and certainly this isn't all up to me by any means, because all these communities can take care of themselves. But. I think a really great trend is that American Western Museums are really truly trying to tell all the stories of the American West, but through the eyes and through the voices and the narrative of those people themselves, like, you know, I first brought Out West, the concept of of Out West to the Autry Museum in in Los Angeles. And I had a friend saying, why are you giving them such credit for doing it, they should have done it already. Well, they didn't know how to do it. I brought them an idea and a way to do it and and they were gracious enough to let me in and and to run with it and so it was on it's on us to tell our stories because somebody else will and they'll just tell them wrong and sometimes that's inadvertent sometimes it's what verdant? Um, anyway, uh, so you know what I mean. It's just—it's not just our community. It's all the different communities, and, and museums are trying to learn how how to tell. They're learning about language and how not to offend. And I think it's fascinating. It's a huge trend that's that's happening. For instance, the the Los Angeles County Museum of Art is now partnering with the Autry Museum to basically share resources, cultural resources, that sort of thing. And that's because they want to learn more about the language of how do you tell these stories you know Um, so that's uh, I think culturally we're we're really headed in a great powerful direction.
0: I'm Andrea Peterson and you've been listening to Salt Lake Magazine's own podcast Salt Lake Speaks.